I V M. Welcome to States of Anarchy. My name is Hamsini Hariharan, and every week on the podcast, I tackle issues on global affairs and foreign policy, all in the hope of making a little more sense of the world around us. This week, it's been difficult to make any sense of the world. If you live in India like I do, I know that the recent wave of COVID infections has been very hard to deal with. But if it's of any consolation at all, you're not in this alone. So I'm sending some love out to you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and take care of each other. Today is our special Q and A episode. We have one major question on Instagram. Binary Footprints, aka Priya Ravi Chandran, asks, "What are the factors that nation states consider while crafting foreign policy?" Great question, Priya. This takes us right back to some of the basics of foreign policy. Every nation has its own set of priorities, and there are several things they need to consider. There's honestly a whole wealth of literature that's out there, but I'm going to put down a few basic points that you need to know. Foreign policy happens the same way public policy does. This is roughly a five-step process. It would involve agenda setting, formulation, adoption, implementation, and evaluation. In simple terms, it just means that we decide what problems are important, create and debate policy, the government formally adopts it, and then the actors in charge carry it out. After it's done, someone sees where it succeeded and where it's failed. That's how any policy works on a very simplistic note. For foreign policy in particular, there are a number of things we need to consider. Now, we need to see what it is that states really want. So if you go back to the realist school, they'll talk about the three S's. That is the state, survival, and self-help. This essentially means that a state is a primary actor on the world stage. And we've talked about this on the podcast multiple times. The basic thing a state wants to do is to survive. So how does it do that? Through self-help or by building its power? Because we all know on the anarchical world stage, you can only trust yourself, right? So these essential considerations are woven into how any country thinks about the world. For example, consider India when it just became independent in 1947. It was a large, poor country with hostile neighbors, and it was worried about being caught up in the Cold War. So the makers of the Indian Constitution decided to put development right at the center. This is why industrialization and a socialist economy were considered essential. At the same time, India also wanted to build its security infrastructure, and it did this by setting up organizations like the DRDO, the Defense Research and Development Organization, that would develop an indigenous weapons program. Now, these considerations of power, prosperity, security, survival. They're all part of what we call national interest. Just like how people's understanding of nationalism differs, their opinions on what national interest is also differs. So national interest isn't static; it's not unchanging. People often decide on the national interest based on their own understanding of the nation and national identity. So values, beliefs, histories, and myths can contribute to this. I'll give you a simple example. Because of a huge diaspora population, the Indian government has always tried to balance between national interest and ethnic interest. Think about the Sri Lankan civil war. We know that the research and analysis wing, or RAW, armed and aided Tamil militants because of close ties between the Tamil people. They even parachuted food and supplies into Tamil war zones in Sri Lanka, where the LTTE were active. 
But when the government realized that this would spill over the separatism within its own borders, it sent the IPKF or the International Peacekeeping Force to Sri Lanka. Now, I'm not going to get into the IPKF's role because it's highly controversial and the war took much longer to decide. But the point is that national interests are fluid and differing. Even now, there are calls to persecute Sri Lankan leaders for war crimes on the international stage. And India always has to listen to Tamils who push for such persecution and its relations with the Sri Lankan government, who would see any sort of involvement as interference in its internal matters. So national interests are often dictated by societal interests. What do people want? How receptive are they to particular nations or international issues or war? This is evident in countries that have a state religion or they have close ties with particular people in other countries, particularly diaspora interests. Of course, economic interests have a huge role in shaping foreign policy because countries don't want to alienate others with whom they have huge commercial interests, right? There could be other strategic interests that a nation could have, like a shared enemy or terrorism. Of course, as with any relationship, historical baggage plays a vital role in crafting policy. We also have to keep in mind cultural norms, like how Southeast Asian nations prefer consensus-based diplomacy. There are many, many factors that get considered when it comes to the crafting of foreign policy. There is one framework that I can point out to make sense of all of this. This is a classical decision-making framework provided by the thinker Graham Allison, and it's now being co-opted into a variety of disciplines. What Allison did was that he looked at how the United States reacted to the Cuban Missile Crisis. He put out a step-by-step framework that leaders typically follow when they have to make a decision. First, the nation-state has to decide its goals. Second, it lists all of its options for achieving these goals. Third, it evaluates each option in terms of the extent to which it could achieve this goal. Finally, it chooses the option. Now, this model was revolutionary, but people and nation-states implicitly use this kind of reasoning to make decisions. Of course, there are complications, bureaucracies, organizational politics, and all of these play out within the making of foreign policy. We can't, of course, discount the role of people and how leaders' own beliefs and biases play out into foreign policy. I honestly wish I had a comprehensive one-paragraph answer to your question, Priya. But that's what makes the whole field of international relations interesting. It's deciphering why nations behave the way they do. And that's what we're doing on the podcast. So maybe my short answer is that by continuing to tune into States of Anarchy every week, we'll get a better idea of how states essentially make foreign policy. Let's end on that note. If you have questions or comments about anything in international relations, you can send them across to me on ibmstatesofanarchy at gmail.com or on Instagram at statesofanarchy or on Twitter at Humsney H. If you want to show us some love, send this episode to someone who you think may enjoy it. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you want to be more involved, check out our Insta page where we post extremely regularly about the world. You can listen to States of Anarchy not only on the IBM podcast app or website, but also on any podcast app you use. We'll be back next Tuesday.